0: Once again, the United States is plunged into a quote-unquote conversation about race. And once again, this conversation seems to have generated more heat than light, and is dominated by partisanship, polarization, and performance. This is unfortunate because there are serious issues that need to be discussed in terms of race, but it seems like we are incapable of having a serious conversation. How can we fix this problem? I would argue that there's really only one solution, and that is that conservatives, those on the right of the American political spectrum, need to seriously engage with the issue of race in a way that they have not done before. I'll explain how they should do this and why it is so vitally important in this episode. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another hopefully thought-provoking and probably challenging episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. We are in thought-provoking and challenging times, and so as much as I would like to go to lighter fare, we have been unable to do that, and I think we're going to be unable to do that again for this episode, and we'll see how things go in times to come. Please remember you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on iTunes. Google Play, Stitcher, etc. And our main site is on Anchor FM. You can also find us on social media on Facebook at Blind Politics, and at the somewhat less active social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter at Blind Politics and at Blind Pol I do We do have a Twitter account. I think that on on some level I am probably morally opposed to the existence of Twitter. Not Not in the sense that people shouldn't have the right to do it, but just that I think that it's a to quote Star Wars, a wretched hive of scum and villainy, and so sort of deliberately have stayed off of it. So that Twitter handle is something I have to think about whether we're going to just keep it or scrap it. But some people seem to like it, and if you if you want to follow us and occasionally, very, very occasionally see something on there, you are welcome to do so. And I would like to just reaffirm once again that views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of Regent University or the Robertson School of Government and that I am Dr. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Okay, so, the last two podcasts that we have done have begun to discuss the fallout of the George Floyd situation. I began by outlining some of the ways in which conservatives and progressives view history, and particularly history as it pertains to issues surrounding race and justice in the United States, And I emphasize the difference between gratitude and justice and why those perspectives so often lead us to talk past one another as we are having these conversations. And then in the next podcast, I discussed the sort of interlocking crises of 2020 and the need for virtue and the fact that the decline of public virtue, the decline of virtue in politics has led to a lot of these crises. What I want to do today is narrow in again on the issue of race and specifically focus on the conservative perspective. So we are going to focus on the conservative relationship to race in the United States. And so this is partially a continuation of that George Floyd series that I mentioned in the previous two podcasts, but it's also a bit of a continuation of the occasional series that we've been doing on conservative political thought. I discussed nationalism. I discussed Christendom. Liberal conservatism is is still something that I'm planning to do an episode on at some point, but this is sort of part of that. And then we also had an episode previously about human nature and the conceptions of human nature that we see in progressive movements and conservative movements. So this is sort of part of, of both of those series, and I want to kind of bring those two things that we've been doing into conversation with one another. So, I said at the outset of this podcast that I think it's very important for conservatives in particular to begin seriously engaging with the conversation that we are right now having on issues of race. And I suspect that most conservatives listening to this will not be happy to particularly hear that. And I want to start this by saying that I I fully sympathize with that because the current conversation we're having on race is extremely annoying. And so when I say that we need to be a part of the conversation as conservatives... I want to first out say at the outset that this does not mean accepting some of the premises that have been thrown out by the progressive movement about race in American history. It does not mean accepting that race taints literally every aspect of the American experiment. It does not mean accepting that America's liberal democratic capitalist system is built on a foundation of slavery. It does not mean accepting the notion of white privilege, which I think is for many reasons a dangerous notion. I think it takes the entire conversation away from foundations of human rights and human dignity and uses the term of privilege. Privilege is a term of aristocracy. Aristocrats traditionally in legal systems have had certain privileges. And so when we start talking about that, we we are taking things away from human dignity, which is a Christian understanding of being made in the image of God, or from human rights, which is sort of more the, the modern contractarian understanding that people have certain rights that they surrender bits of to society in exchange for certain certain goods, but that those rights are intrinsic to them and, you know, defending those rights as a contract hearing person of government. But we've essentially turned things into a discourse purely on power, right? So I don't accept the term white privilege. I also think the term white privilege is, is sort of unhelpful because it's self-referential, right? So if you're talking about as a white person, you're white privilege, you're talking about yourself. And as you may have noticed from some of my previous podcasts, I find a conversation on race where you're talking entirely about your own perspective to be not really a conversation. And so the idea that the whole purpose of this conversation is to get us to have a better understanding of white privilege, I think, is is mistaken. I also think from a practical standpoint, there is considerable evidence that white privilege education doesn't, in fact, make people who receive it more positively inclined toward African-Americans, That in fact, the only thing it does is makes them more negatively inclined and more judgmental toward white people who are at the bottom of the pyramid toward poor whites. So by no means do I think that conservatives playing a role in or having a a part in the conversation on race means that we need to accept the assumptions of the modern progressive movement. Because I think in terms of race, they're wrong on every point except for one. Almost everything that progressives have said about race today in the United States is wrong, except for one critically important aspect, and that is that we still have a problem, that we still have a problem with race and with racism in this country, and that that problem is deeply embedded in the reality that we currently experience. That is the one thing progressives have gotten right. They've gotten everything else. Their, their ideas about solutions are completely wrong. Their ideas about how, how that problem is embedded in our society are wrong or problematic. They're, certainly, their understanding of human nature is, is deficient. Their understanding of history is not great. But they got the problem correct they have got the problem correct there is a problem this is a serious problem it is deeply embedded and so what has been the conservative response the conservative response generally speaking whenever we have these conversations is to be frustrated with progressives and as i said emotionally understand that response because it is frustrating and it seems sometimes you know to too many more suspicious conservatives that the purpose of this is to smuggle other things into the conversation you know when we start pivoting from talking about police brutality to abolishing the nuclear family, which aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement have made a plank of their platform. Okay, we have a problem. We have a a degree to which conservatives are just not going to be part of that conversation. And I think that appropriately, conservatives will say, wait a minute here, there's a a bait and switch going on. How did something that involves the dignity, the rights, the basic humanity of a human being, defending that principle, how did that now somehow become associated with we need to abolish the nuclear family? That's ridiculous. And as we'll get into in a second, I think that is, is counterproductive to the goal of bringing about greater racial equality in the United States. So yeah, there's a lot of frustration. But here's the problem that I see for us as conservatives. And I say us because I, I have been part of the conservative movement. I have been connected to it. And I've been just as reluctant to talk about anything that's, that's a racial-related issue as anybody else, if not more so. Now, granted, for, for personal reasons, primarily, but that doesn't necessarily mean I have been right to not engage with that conversation. The problem is that if the progressives are getting the fact that there is a problem right, and the conservative response to that is essentially silence, is essentially to say those people are crazy, Right? then we have an issue because you can't beat something with nothing. And there clearly is a problem. There clearly is a felt issue, an experienced problem, an experienced inequality. And I think that there is a real problem. There is there, is more than just the experience that people are having. I think there is still a real continuing problem with racism in the United States. So conservatives need to be engaged in this because, number one, it is a real problem. Number two, because if, if conservatives are simply denying the problem exists, then the only people who are going to be listened to in terms of solutions are going to be the progressives. because They're the only ones out there having the conversation. They're the only ones in the arena. And if, if we think their solutions are wrong, based on flawed premises, will not lead to the desired end states. What's our solution? Because if our solution is simply to say, well, the status quo is fine, clearly it's not. If it was, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Again and again and again. If the status quo was fine, if the status quo was working, then we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. Now, I think that the conservative response to this needs to first and foremost begin by founding itself on our understanding of history and of humanity. The conservative understanding of history and the conservative understanding of humanity. And At first glance, that might seem like fairly unpromising terrain for coming up with a a real serious engagement with, let alone a solution for the question of race and racism in the United States. To summarize that from previous podcasts, the conservative conception of human nature is that human nature is fundamentally flawed, that it is real. It is a real concrete thing that can't necessarily be changed just by talking about it in a different way, right? So there is something concrete, there is something real, to human nature that goes just beyond the words that we say about it. Words do matter. Certainly, the way we talk about things matters and it has an impact. And I discussed that earlier when I discussed why I'm uncomfortable with the term privilege, because when we start using the word privilege and, and, t- and applying that to white people and talk about white privilege or you know anybody else's privilege, then we are talking about power. We are not talking about something that is intrinsic to all human beings. And when you start saying things like, well, you have the privilege of not being stopped by a police officer when you walk down the street because of the color of your skin. I'm sorry, that's not a privilege, right? Under the American system, the, the idea of not being exposed to unreasonable search and seizure is a right guaranteed in the Constitution to all citizens of the United States. That is not a privilege. That is not something you get because you're an aristocrat. It is an inalienable right. So if we are talking about the denial of rights to a category of people, we should talk about that as such. If we're talking on Christian terms about the denial of people's human dignity, we should talk about it as such. We should not substitute a word from some sort of postmodern conception of all languages power, so let's construct language as power, that also divides people and doesn't accomplish anything. So words do matter, right? But words are not everything. You can't simply reduce human nature to the way we talk about it. You can't simply educate certain things out of people. You, You can't educate certain things into people but there are some intrinsic aspects of our character as human beings that exist a priori, that exist before we are educated. You can call that a result of creation and fall if you're a Christian. You can call that a result of evolutionary biology and psychology if you're not. But whatever you see as the source of that, and I think the argument about the source matters, but again, we're, we're looking in the realm of, of politics here, that is something that you have to understand. And then the conservative understanding of history is, again, this idea of gratitude. right? So human nature is what it is. Human nature is constrained by civilization. This is, from a conservative perspective, the purpose of civilization. We should have gratitude, then, for civilization, for the fact that it does constrain human nature, it constrains these aspects of human nature. We should have gratitude for the ways in which our past institutions have done so and have done so well. We should have a respect for tradition and for the past and preserve that which is best, in our traditions, in our past, in our heritage, because of that sense of gratitude. Now, this seems like, again, very unfavorable terrain for talking about issues of race, because you might say, well, based on that perspective, then we should just be grateful for what we have, because human nature indicates that things aren't really going to get much better. Okay, that is one way in which you could have a conversation. I think that's sort of the default setting that a lot of conservatives take when we talk about these issues of race. Things have gotten better you know, we have we have moved beyond things that happened in the past. Things have gotten as, as much better as they can. There are limits to how much better they can get. So we need to have gratitude for what we've accomplished and recognize that there are constraints that human nature imposes on what we can achieve in the future. Now, I think that there is merit in both the idea of having gratitude for the past and the idea that human nature imposes constraints on what's achievable in the present and the future. I think that's 100% correct. But, I don't think that necessarily means that we need to accept the idea that the racial problem is fixed. In fact, I would argue quite the opposite, that the conservative understanding of human nature properly understood should lead us to be very sympathetic to the idea that race and racial division and racism is still a problem in the United States, because the reality of human nature is that it is intrinsic, it is a priori, it comes before civilization. And one of those aspects of human nature that is a priori is the tendency of human beings to discriminate, to divide people into us and them. Biblically, we see this when Cain kills Abel. He's got something I want, the favor of God. I don't have it. I am jealous. I'm going to kill him because he's not me. He, he is not my neighbor. Am I my brother's keeper, right? It's the first us-them division in humanity and Christianity, right? Evolutionary psychologists have caught up To the insights of the bible and now recognize that there is a mechanism that sorts people paul bloom in his book just babies talks about this sorting mechanism that that babies even in utero have a preference for the voices and the accents and the language of their parents and that preference can be expressed very early on and so by the way paul bloom's book is called just babies i got that citation Shamelessly stole it from Suicide of the West by General Goldberg, which is an interesting read, and I think is is worth worth reading and worth discussing. Right. The philosopher Ibn Khaldun, writing in the, uh, I believe it would have been late 14th or early 15th century, calls this Asabia, with a sense of social solidarity or group belonging, right, that bonds people together. Others have referred to it as the coalition instinct, our inner tribal wiring, however you want to look at it. We naturally discriminate, right? We naturally have a distrust of those who are not like us. Now, how we determine who is not like us is socially conditioned. But the other aspect of of conservative history that I think is important to understand is that you can't just overnight change long-standing habits and traditions and aspects of the society. You can't just automatically, easily, quickly change things that have been embedded in culture for a long period of time. And the idea of racial stratification has been embedded in the United States for a long period of time. I do not think that it is intrinsic to the United States. I don't think that it's intrinsic to American society, because it has existed in very disparate form in disparate parts of the United States. It's very stratified in the antebellum South. There's a very clear delineation of racial categories in the antebellum South. Less so in the rapidly industrialized North of that time. It's very stratified today in, in cities. If you're living in an urban area in the United States, you live in a very racially stratified society. Not necessarily as as compared to some other parts of the world, perhaps, but certainly as compared to our self-identification our, and our self-understanding as the United States. Side note, I think a lot of the reason why conservatives sometimes don't see racism as an issue is because of where they live. You don't see as many conservatives living in urban areas, and a lot of the experiential aspect of Some of the the racial divides and racial stratification that does still exist in the United States comes if you live in a city. And if you don't, it's not always as evident, particularly if you're in a more suburban area or, you know, an area that doesn't have some of these longstanding historical legacies. Right. So do I think it's intrinsic? No. I think, in fact, that particular form of stratification was a poisoned chalice and has been a poisoned chalice for the American political tradition from the beginning. It has been something that has been an incompatibility, an incompatible tradition within the broader American political and historical tradition that continuously has caused damage to that tradition. You could think of it as sort of a kudzu vine, right? So you've got a tree that's growing up, and that tree in and of itself would be fine, except it's got this parasitical vine that's growing on it. Kudzu is sort of a, a tree parasite like that mistletoe is to a certain extent as well. You know, it makes us all sad that our favorite Christmas plant is a parasite, but it is. And so the parasite is feeding off the tree even as it's killing the tree. And I think that's the relationship of this racial stratification to the American political tradition. So that being said, we can't assume that this weed, this parasite, this parasitical plant that has been sucking at the life of the American political tradition for a very long time is fully gone, right? One of the insights about human nature is that if you don't remain constantly vigilant against it, it will come back. You have to constantly drive out those aspects of human nature that you don't want with a pitchfork, right? Parenting is a good reminder of this. If you've not had the experience of parenting a small child, you will have to repeat the same thing over and over and over again, and reinforce the same lesson, and be consistent over and over and over again, right? The same is true of human nature. We must be constantly on guard against those aspects of human nature that are negative. So, in terms of race, we should, as conservatives, expect that there would still be racial problems today. We should not expect that you can pass an act, you can pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that you can elect someone president, that you can create some other form of affirmative action or reparations or something like that, and fix the problem. Because for us, as conservatives, the problem is not a systemic, institutionalized form of oppression. Right? The problem is not the systems, it's not the institutions, the problem is the people. The problem is a deeply rooted aspect of culture, that probably there are limits to how much government can fix that, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we need to try, and that there aren't things that we need to do. So there's a tragic element to conservative understanding of history. What do I mean by that? We have this gratitude for the benefits of civilization. We have this understanding of human nature as something that has really intrinsic aspects. And many of those intrinsic aspects are negative from the perspective of us being able to live together well. The tragedy is that civilization is always fragile. That civilization is always kind of at risk of corruption. And that the struggle to preserve that which is best in the old and to fix the problems that have come out of new circumstance is always kind of a struggle of bailing out a leaky canoe without necessarily being able to plug the leak because the leak is human nature right so you're constantly bailing out the canoe and you can't ever really rest from that you can't ever really take it for granted that the canoe is bailed out so that if that's our understanding of history then we should apply that understanding of history to this issue of race has substantial progress been made yes Absolutely. And it's hard to argue that it hasn't been. 200 years ago, if you were African-American in this country, you could not vote. In most parts of the country where there was a high density of African-Americans, you were probably enslaved. There were certainly jobs that were prohibited from you. the idea that you would have had someone who was a president who was African-American, the idea that you would have had African-American women in in Congress, in on Fortune 500 companies, all those types of things, the idea of that kind of progress would have been unthinkable 200 years ago. There has been progress. There is legal de jure. There is a lot more racial equality. A lot more racial equality. Okay, but we still live in a leaky canoe. Human nature still is what it is. You still have to drive human nature out with a pitchfork. It's not going to go away. And as long as we have that division, that division, that racial division is sort of the the primary division in our politics, right? and i think it is i think to a large extent other countries have class divisions the way we have racial divisions in the united states americans don't think in terms of class but that's partially because we do think in terms of race you know and if it were up to me we wouldn't (laughs) we would get rid of the racial divisions skin color is a completely arbitrary way to construct differences between people but we can't just wave our hands and have that be gone so how do we fix things from this conservative perspective, right? First of all, we have to recognize that we have to actually try to do so because it is a leak, right? It is a way in which the bad aspects of human nature come back in. Second, because it undermines the things for which we are grateful. It undermines the tradition, the history, the patrimony that we want to pass on to our kids and our civilization is undermined. By this aspect of human nature, to divide ourselves and our culture's tendency to construct that division along racial lines. It undermines the good things that we as conservatives want to preserve. And so we have to be constantly on guard against it and constantly fighting against that. So, what is the solution from a conservative perspective? First of all, there's recognizing the problem. Second, I think conservatives will look to civil society, conservatives will look to government last, and will look to reforms of those agencies organizations and institutions that produce social capital a conservative solution is going to have to come from the churches it's going to have to come from community organizations and it it may look like a certain form of if not reparations then repentance what do i mean by that what i mean by that is we all have institutions that we love we all have things that we feel attached to, whether it's churches, whether it's our civic organizations, and so on and so forth. And some of them do not have a great history with race. And the answer to that is not some sort of performative apology, right? Some sort of, you know, wearing sackcloth and ashes, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. The answer is learning from that, accepting that aspect of our past, and working to do better, working affirmatively to come to the aid of those who have been denied their human dignity as a result of this ongoing problem of racism that comes from human nature and aspects of our culture. Ultimately, politics is downstream from culture and we have to change culture. And we change that culture through a careful and thoughtful approach to civil society, through sort of tending the garden of civil society, right? So pruning and changing those aspects that are giving purchase to that aspect of human nature that we need to fight against, and doing so in a way that is consistent with those aspects that we wish to preserve—strong you know, families, liberty, the character of America, the virtues that we value—you know another aspect of this is recognizing the degree to which um, racism in the United States has damaged the black family, the African American family right? We as conservatives will tend to believe that families are the building block of societies. Well, if you have a system that first, through slavery, breaks up families as a matter of policy, right? The mother and children being sold in different places away from the father, marriages being forbidden, or being only granted at the permission of someone who who claims that he owns you, right? Those are damaging to the institution of the family. Then you also have things that have prevented... Strong families from 1860 to to 1960, right? So things like restrictions on property rights, property ownership, you know, systematic impoverishment. We know that sometimes when when people are poor, you see family breakdown. You see that oftentimes in, in poor communities. Systematic denial of opportunities. Because if you can't move into the middle class, it's hard to build that sort of middle class family life, right? And then ironically, even as the Civil Rights Act is passed, even as we have de jure equality, an unintended consequence of the war on poverty is a further decline in families. First among the African-American poor and later now even among poor whites. And that's chronicled as early as Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report for the Bureau of Labor, the Moynihan report, which talks in, in language that is probably not necessarily acceptable by today's standards. It was written in the 1960s and, you know, language has shifted then. But a lot of the principles of that are I think now pretty much robustly attested to and understood by social science. Okay, so we have a problem that is a multi-generational, multi-generational damage has been done to the family and to civil society institutions in many in many of these communities. Is that something where churches, where civil society organizations can step in, can help? Are there ways that we can, through policy, encourage the strengthening? of marriage and family and family ties, among the poor in general and among African Americans in particular. Because that aspect of of this problem is not just an African American problem, as Charles Murray chronicles in Coming Apart. It's a problem that afflicts the poor across racial boundaries in the United States right now. And it's, it's probably something that is the single biggest barrier to upward mobility for the poor is the breakdown of family and and people who are already poor and marginal from a socioeconomic perspective who don't have two parents in the household. If you have two parents in the household, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of race, the chances that you will be economically better off than your parents are much higher. And the chances that you'll be better off in all those sorts of ways. So that's not just an African-American problem, but it is a serious problem. It is a problem that compounds the aspects of race and racial injustice that we've been talking about. So we shouldn't pretend that that's just something that's happening in African-American inner cities, right? Or that there's something about African-Americans that makes that unique. It's not. It is That is a universal problem, but it has impacts. And we need to also look at the way in which those in authority and those in power deal with the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable African-Americans. And are they being treated with human dignity? And are we requiring of them moral and ethical conduct that we would expect if they were interacting with us so are we requiring of police the same moral and ethical conduct that we would expect if we were being stopped by a cop and I think that's another area where conservatives can come in and say look this is something that we can contribute if you don't have a robust understanding of ethics that is imbued in people that are given the authority by government to use force you're going to have serious problems because you can create all the policies you want. let say our policy says we won't do X. But eventually you're going to come up against a situation that policy doesn't cover. And the question is, have you trained people how to think about what it means to do the right thing? All right, you've been entrusted by the citizens of the United States to carry a gun in their defense and to use that weapon under certain circumstances against civilians, which the military is not entrusted with, by the way. So what does that mean? What does it mean to do the right thing in that circumstance? And are we training people to think in those terms? because that is something that we need to do that's something that we need to respect. And then of course there are other aspects right So we, we could think about education we could think about you know aspects of what does it look like to, to have social welfare that is based on the idea of human dignity right the idea that we are trying to create civilization, we are trying to fight human nature, we are trying to empower people based on the idea that they are made in the image of God from a Christian perspective or, from a non-Christian perspective, that there is some other basis on which we believe that they have an intrinsic dignity as human beings. Right? That should be the underlying basis of our system of welfare. If we're going to have a social welfare system, right? If we're going to try to have a government policy that is going to fix these issues of, of racism, it needs to be on that basis. It needs to be on the basis of universal human dignity. Because there is no other basis that will work. We can't fix the problem by trying to teach people the cult of niceness in schools. We can't fix the problem by just throwing money at it. We've tried that. We've thrown lots of money at problems, and it rarely works. There are some problems that actually you can fix by throwing money at them. When a bunch of people are unemployed because of a pandemic and you throw lots of money at the problem, that may fix the problem, at least partially. We'll see. So I'm not going to say that money doesn't solve problems. It can But money can only solve problems for people who have underlying strong social networks underlying strong social realities in which they exist where they've got ties to other people based on strong families and a sense of their own dignity and self-worth and empowerment such that they look at that money and say i'm going to take this money and i'm going to invest it in what economists call future regarding behavior behavior that looks toward the future and builds toward a better life for myself and my family and my kids moving forward that comes from human dignity so if we're going to try to step in and solve these problems We need to think about it from that human dignity perspective, that racism has denied people their human dignity for far too long, that it will still do so, that it is an artifact not of some sort of systemic system of oppression or a discourse of privilege or any of that nonsense, but it's a a fact of human nature, right? We discriminate by nature. And the only way you're going to get rid of that is by grounding your approach in understanding of universal human dignity and by creating policies that will teach people, from an ethical perspective, what is the right thing to do. And ultimately, I think there is a a justifiable skepticism that we can ever fully fix this problem, that we're ever going to look in a day where we have full racial equality in the United States, unless there is some other way in which we create an us-them difference, right? So one of, the, one of the jokes that I sometimes have made is that if you want racism to go away, just wait till the aliens invade, right? Because then there's another them against whom all of us are defined. I'm not necessarily sure that's a, a great thing either, because nobody wants to suffer through an alien invasion. But it's there is that just natural human tendency, an us-them tendency. And so you always have to think about how that's be channeled. And you can try to educate that out of people, but you are educating people against their nature if you are trying to educate them out of an us-them perspective. Go back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast on white privilege, right? So if you're educating white people that white people are privileged, that's just going to give them license to look down on a different group of white people instead, right? The, the negative stereotypes they had against African Americans may or may not go away, but they will certainly judge the heck out of poor white people who haven't been able to improve their situation. Why? Well, because they're privileged, And if they're privileged, well, why can't they just go out and fix their problems and get a job and move somewhere else or whatever? That's how human beings work. If we're told we can't hate one group, (laughs) we'll find another group to hate. That's not actually a solution because it doesn't actually change anything positively for that other group, that group that was marginalized. And is it really a better situation if we replace the African-American poor and we move them sort of one rung up the racially stratified system and then we put poor whites on the bottom. Does that actually fix the problem? Because I don't necessarily think it does. So we need to look beyond that. We need to look beyond this current discussion and discourse that we're having, but we need to recognize that there are limits to what's achievable. But those limits don't give us an excuse to not do anything. Because if we don't try, if we don't fight to bail the leaky canoe, we're all going to drown. And that's the conservative understanding of history, right? We have to keep fighting. We have to keep doing it, even if we don't necessarily think that ultimately in this life we are going to be fully successful. And this, I think, is where we come back to the Christian underpinning of much of this. You know, obviously I've been speaking in terms of, you know, if you're a Christian, this. If you're not a Christian, that. Right. And if you're not a Christian, here's where we have to stop. You know, we have to preserve civilization. Civilization is good. The leaky canoe, it needs to be bailed out. And so, we don't have any ultimate hope. This is, this is really going to be successful, but we have to do it anyway because it's our job. And, you know, hopefully there's a little bit less water leaking in for our kids, although they'll probably have a leak spring somewhere else. and will have to keep bailing. Right? And that's it. But that's not it if you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, there is that hope. That eschatological hope. See, from a Christian perspective, the ultimate solution to racism and racial injustice and racial division is an eschatological solution. Because we know from scripture that in Christ there is no slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female, black nor white certainly as well. So when we are all in Christ, these things will pass away. Race is a social construct. It is a very thick social construct. It is not a social construct that we can just pull out by the weeds if we have seminars about the 1619 Project, right? But it is a social construct. And like all social constructs, it will pass away. When Christ returns. And we have ultimate hope of that return. Right? But in the same way that as Christians, we wouldn't say, well, we, we don't need to go tell people about the gospel because Jesus is gonna come back eventually, right? We can't do anything. We can't some people aren't gonna accept it. So you know we have to do anything about that. We don't need to really worry about government because Jesus is gonna come back at some point. You know, you can't have that attitude of anything else. You can't have that about race and racism either. We still have to fight against it because it's our job, it's our calling, and because these are our brothers and sisters, right? Again, speaking to Christians, we have been conservative Christians. I don't care who you vote for or who they vote for. You have more in common with your African American brothers and sisters in Christ than you do with a white atheist that you happen to agree with on politics. That's a fundamental distinction that we as Christians make that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family, we are part of God's family. We are adopted into God's family despite our sin, whatever those sins might be. And so we have to stand for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not have the option. It is our job. It is our responsibility. They are our neighbors, and they are are our family. It doesn't matter whether we can succeed and fix the problem entirely or not, because fixing the problem is not our job as Christians. It's Christ's job, and it will be fixed. But we are a part of that solution. And so, particularly for those who are conservative Christians, Right, who are members of the religious right in some sense it's even more important because we have a double calling right a calling both from that general conservative principle and from the Christian principle to love our neighbors to stand with our brothers and sisters who are suffering to not be that ear that says to the eye I don't need you you're not part of the body right we need to not to not do that a strong uh, mandate to not do that right but we also have hope that no one outside of our faith, can really share. I mean, other churches and and religions have certainly some eschatological visions and eschatological hope. But we do have that ultimate hope. An ultimate hope that is explicit in saying that all this sin has been dealt with at the cross and will be wiped away at the eschaton. And so we can move forward in that hope. And we have to. We have no choice. It is a requirement of our faith it is a requirement of our underlying beliefs. And I think increasingly it is a requirement of the times. So let's get started. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Once again, you can rate and subscribe on iTunes. Spotify, your favorite podcast provider. Our main site is Anchor.fm. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram and Twitter at Blind Politics, and Blind pol respectively. Not sure exactly when this is going to come out or what we have planned next. Probably something international. We've been doing domestic politics for the last couple of episodes, and I'm frankly ready to start looking around at the rest of the world and see what's going on and You know, see if there's uh, if there's something that we can talk about there. However, you know, events could happen, and if events happen, we will try to approach them as well from this same sensible center-right, facts not feelings, and you know, first principles-based perspective. So, thank you once again for listening, and please tell your friends, tell your family members, tell folks at your church, tell everybody you know to rate and subscribe to Blind Politics if you like us, and leave five-star ratings on iTunes because that's good for some reason, and have a great week have a great weekend whenever you're you're hearing this probably the beginning of the week so i guess have a great rest of your week and for blind politics this is dr nolte signing off